Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. As climate change nears potentially catastrophic tipping points, a solution is hiding in plain sight. My guest, Joshua Goldstein, and his co-author, Staffan Quist, offer a proven, fast, inexpensive way to cut greenhouse gas emissions and solve global warming. Several countries have successfully replaced fossil fuels with low-carbon energy sources by combining renewable energy with a quick build-out of nuclear power. These countries, notably Sweden and France, offer a model of abundant clean energy and economic prosperity that could allow the world to decarbonize by mid-century. With the stakes extraordinarily high, this clear and compelling book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow, could spark the transformation in energy policy that the world needs. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Joshua Goldstein. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. You've written a great book, co-authored with uh, a guy named Staffan Kvist. I hope I'm saying that right. A a Swedish uh, thinker called A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Now, to say this book is provocative to some, I, I would say... Is an understatement. Is that fair? Because because of the sort of solution that you're you're pro- you're proffering to some of our climate calamity. Yeah. So I got into the book just solely to try to figure out how to solve climate change, and um, and it turned out that the solution that's got to be part of it is something that I originally didn't like when I was younger, and that is nuclear power. So uh, there's a whole reconsideration going on now about nuclear power. Um, with many people, and I'm maybe a little ahead of that because I've done a lot of research on it now. But it, you know, it starts out people are just very afraid and don't understand a lot. And then as you add it up and try to figure out how can we actually solve climate change, it turns out nuclear power pretty much has to be a big part of the solution, uh, along with renewables and uh, changes in land use and many other things. Um, so people have to get around that and grapple with their fears. And that's the process I went through working on the book. So to say that you were not a fan of nuclear power before you wrote the book, that's not an exclusive club, right? (laughs) Most, I mean, it's probably hard to find huge fans of it outside of like certain industries or people that have done a lot of research. Like you would not need to book a huge convention center to have that uh, to have the conventions of the of the fans of it, uh, <laughs> but you had you had a real so and so your your change of mind here was an intellectually honest one. It wasn't sort of a, a fascination w- with the thing itself. In fact, your dispositions were set up against the thing that you now see as kind of the brightest hope for us turning around the climate change dilemma. Right. So I I grew up in Northern California in the 1970s, uh, you know, 60s and 70s. And um, coming out of that place, nuclear power was, you know, not the solution that we liked as young environmentalists. I mean, I can remember the first Earth Day and all. And back then, um, 
we thought small is beautiful. We thought back to the land was good and nature is good and technology is bad. Um, and that's none of that is nuclear power. You know, nuclear power is technological and, and large scale and involves big amounts of energy and electricity and all that. Now, what you say about nobody likes it isn't quite right because there are whole sections of the country that are pretty pro-nuclear and actually public opinion in the United States is divided about down the middle on nuclear power. But it tends to be the more conservative people like nuclear power and they're not, not the ones I grew up around or live with here in Massachusetts mostly. Um, and then uh, they're not the ones who care about climate change. So the people who care about climate change tend to be the ones who don't like nuclear power. So that's where you get this dilemma of the thing that you fear might be the thing that saves you. Yeah, and the people that are for it also probably have a host of issues that they're more passionate about, right? This is this is not take up as much of their bandwidth as the people that are activists it, 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 working against it, right? You're right, you're right. The people who are against it are very vocal, very active, and feel very strongly about it. I've heard from some of them. <laughs> Did you get like horses' heads? Like you wake up next no, or anything? It's like that. <laughs> actually, the response I've been getting, and the book's been out for just a month now, um, has been surprising to me because I thought there'd be tremendous amount of very emotional pushback on it, and it hasn't been that at all. There have been a lot of objections, and I'm sure we'll go down the list. What do you do with the waste? What about the cost? Is it safe? Etc. Um, but uh, also a lot of support. And I'm hearing from uh, very many people who say, I don't like nuclear power, but we might need nuclear power. Or, you know, I always thought I was against it, but now I'm reconsidering it. There's a, a, a reconsideration going on uh, among a lot of people who really care about climate change, that maybe that's the top priority. And what happens with a casket of nuclear waste uh, a thousand years from now is less important. You know, let's focus on really solving the problem at hand because it's become so dramatically um, obvious now that that's the thing we need to grapple with. There's a book I love by a guy named Edward Free Friedman. It's deceased now, but uh, it's called Failure of Nerve Leadership in the Age of Quick Fix. And it's a lot of sort of, it, I mean, he was a therapist, but he wrote a lot about leadership. He tells this story about the the four minute mile and how, you know, in the, in the forties when great Swedish runners like Gunder Hag and Arne Andersen kept failing to break the four minute mile, people just thought it wasn't possible. Then finally in 1957, uh, Roger Bannister breaks it. And then the next year, like three people do it. And they asked, uh, somebody asked an African runner how his colleague, Roger Bannister broke the, the, the mile record. He said, it's easy. He's not caught up in the mythology of most Western runners. And then there's a great chapter just on emotional myths and how they just block us. And and I feel like you kind of lay out the problem in terms of emotional myths in that if, if climate change was an asteroid, like the Armageddon movie or something, we would just be, if even if we knew it was 20 or 30 years ahead, not just a year or something, we'd be thinking radically different about it if it was, if it, if it wasn't imperceptible, hard to visualize, there weren't so many skeptics around it. So there's that. And then the emotional myths around nuclear power, around renewables. It seems like it seems like a perfect storm of sort of psychological myths that keep us in a self-defeating posture towards the problem. Yeah, climate change is a really hard problem just structurally because the things we do now, things we do in the next 10, 20 years are going to shape the future of the planet for hundreds of years into the future. But, you know, we'll be dead hundreds of years into the future. So is, 
you know, do we care about it? Yes. Is today the day to go out all out as though the asteroids bearing down on us? Well, not necessarily. So we sort of we feel like we have time, but we don't really have time because we need to act now to prevent these disasters in the future. And then um, the disasters in the future are kind of uncertain. We know it's bad, but how bad is it? What will it really mean? How will future generations deal with it? So you have to pay, um, you know, you have to take definite action that might be inconvenient or, or even expensive now to head off uh, disasters in the future that are might or might not really happen. Like you're not sure the asteroid's going to hit, but you think it will. Um, and then uh, to make matters worse, the each country and each person contributes to the problem, but the actual outcome doesn't depend on any one person's contribution. So whether I stop polluting with carbon or not doesn't affect my future. It's what everybody does. And then up at the international level, you know, what China does with its carbon, and it's the largest carbon polluter in the world, is going to affect the United States outcome. So it's not like we can take action um, and then reap the rewards of our action. It has to happen globally. So it's a really hard problem that way. Then you over yeah, and it's almost like the responsible people, right? That okay, you buy your plug-in hybrid, you pull into the electric spot at Whole Foods, you virtue signal, you judge everybody that doesn't bring their own bags. But really, it's it's deceiving, right? Because systemically, you're not really moving the needle, but you lull yourself into a sense of like, well, look, I'm one of the righteous, and I'm I'm doing my part, and really. It almost is like some of the options to act responsibly might might make the problem worse by deceiving people that they're they're moving the needle. Yeah, I think so. We we lull ourselves into thinking that we have time or that we're moving forward. And I, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a life member of the Sierra Club. I'm an environmentalist, and I get emails from all the climate action groups, and they just um, very frequently are congratulating themselves on great victories that we're achieving. We've turned out X number of people in the street. We got this company or city to declare that they're going to go 100% renewable, et cetera. You know, and the amount of solar panels going in is rising all the time. Costs are coming down. But I always think, what's the metric that matters here? And the metric that matters is how much carbon is in the atmosphere. Um, and that's got to stop increasing in the next 30 years and start in decreasing by then. And so far, we're just completely off track to to do that. You know, the the carbon's still going up. The rate at which we're adding it is still going up. Uh, use of coal is, hasn't dropped yet. Um, and so that's what matters is what's actually solving the problem. And so when I when I hear that like Massachusetts is going to or California is going to go 100 percent renewables or something, it's like that's not the problem. You know. Even if you could go 100% renewables, which what they really mean is uh, 200% when the sun's shining, and then borrow fossil fuels when it's not, you know. That's right. Yeah. You say you say that you, you say that every state, every university in the book, and every organization that says that ought to be like sued for false advertising. They they ought to say what it really means is right. You're saying because like when you're not using it, you're borrowing from dirty sources or, or more carbon producing sources. So really, you're kind of. Again, it's a virtue signaling thing, right? Oh, look, we feel great about ourselves because we're not part of the problem. You, you, you're inevitably part of the problem, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Budweiser had this ad during the Super Bowl. It's like Budweiser now brewed with wind power, and I'm like, oh, that's not really true. And everybody looks at me like, what do you mean? You know? And I said, well, do you think they stop brewing when the wind stops blowing? You know, like, what they mean is they're they're using wind power, and that's good. 
But uh, then when the wind's not blowing, then they're using coal or gas or whatever's on their electricity grid. So I, I hate the kind of celebratory, all we need to do is these little green actions at the local level or the individual level because they don't add up. So they're great. They're fine. I do it myself. I have solar cells on my house. I drive an electric car. I turn off the lights. But I don't want to delude myself that I'm solving climate change doing that. Like maybe if everybody did that, it would help. But it's not helping fast enough and everybody's not doing it. So we need solutions that really work, that are practical. And they have to be scaled up at the global scale and not just steps in the right direction here, there and everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you say in the book that you know, if we want a Star Trek future rather than a Blade Runner. Even pa the Paris Accords wouldn't really do anything. I mean, the, the, the are, there are changes that have to be so radical that we're, you know, that that this this which brings us to the solution you advocate. Now, what's great, I love, is you write a chapter. You have a chapter uh, about Sweden, and you actually call the the you 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 call uh, you call nuclear power by its by its Swedish name, Kerncroft. Kerncroft, right? And so as you're reading this Kerncroft, Kerncroft, Kerncroft is this, Kerncroft is that, it's this. So if the person didn't know what the word was, they'd be like, where can we get Kerncroft? Right, right? Right, right. Why? Gosh, how do I get my senator, my congressman to get us on this Kerncroft? I mean, the Swedes are doing it and they're hip and progressive. And then you you reveal at the end that it's nuclear power, that this that this dream sort of, um, it's the it's the equivalent of kale, uh, for you know, or, or quinoa or something for uh, for energy that 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 this really is uh, 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 is close to uh, a panacea. Uh, I mean, it doesn't solve everything, but if electricity is our major one of our major problems, and in getting power, we've we've got to reduce carbon emissions. That this is really the only feasible way. Unless, you know, people from Star Trek travel back in time and give us the lithium crystals or something like this is really the only thing on the intellectual horizon that that seems feasible to deal with the problem at the rapid rate. It, it It's snowballing. Yeah. So the 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 not using the word nuclear in the beginning of the book was deliberate. And because everybody knows it's a book about nuclear power, but this has to do with fears. And I had a whole theory of trauma that goes behind it. And those of us that grew up in the Cold War and were afraid of nuclear weapons and all of that, the word nuclear just hits a spot in our brains that uh, triggers fear for a lot of people. So it's like, well, uh, you know, I'll talk about it, but I just won't use that word. Um, and then, you know, by the end of the couple of chapters in is like, by the way, Kerncraft is actually nuclear power. Like, yeah, I knew that. But meanwhile, you can think about it without being triggered into why you hate nuclear power. I had a similar thing out in California recently when I was speaking and um, California wants to go clean energy and, you know, clean up its carbon pollution, et cetera. Um, right now it has a lot of solar panels, but then when at nighttime it imports coal and nuclear and gas from elsewhere. Um, so I said, you know, what would you think if I gave you a, a new energy plant that would produce clean electricity with no carbon pollution for a million California homes and would operate day and night, um, any kind of weather and produce electricity at less than a nickel a kilowatt hour? You know, they pay 20 cents retail. And, um, you know, that would sound like a pretty good deal, wouldn't it? And I could, and not only that, I could build it overnight and have it operating for you tomorrow morning. You know, it's like, what? 
And, and it's like, just don't close the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which is their, you know, <laughs> it's like their biggest source of clean electricity. And like, oh, no, no. But, you know, you, it's really hard to run forward when you're running backwards so fast because that's, that's, you know, a million homes worth of clean energy. And they're just planning to close it in a few years. Like, no, we don't like nuclear. And so this is the thing about climate change and the asteroid heading towards Earth. It, do we have the luxury to say that? Like, well, you know, we don't like this or that solution. It doesn't match up with our ideology um, or, or whatever reason to take things off the table that could actually help to solve the problem. Yeah, you cite a study. Uh, 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 it was in 1987, a review of the a psychology of risk perception and nuclear power is an example. And you, you say that in the book that this is one of the examples where there's such a massive difference between expert opinion and the popular opinion. And it, it nuclear power is seen as high risk because its risks were involuntary, delayed, unknown, uncontrollable, unfamiliar, potentially catastrophic, dreaded. And severe. And then you say, by contrast, risks for things like medical x-rays, even when they involve similar amounts of radi radiation, were judged lower because they were more voluntary, less catastrophic, less dreaded, and more familiar. And, and this just kind of uh, irrational to non-rational kind of fear. It's, it's the same thing with like driverless cars, right? Yeah. You could say that once with the technology is really perfect, the algorithms, it's going to save so many lives. So people just feel less safe, even though, you know, the, the, the car, the drive, the Google car is not going to text and drive. It's not going to say I could drive after four martinis, right. two and a half. Right. You know, right. it's five. Or, you know, like all these things, like, like it's one of these things where just the way our minds are wired around risk yeah. is just so it, 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 it disposes us so negatively to this energy solution by the way that when you get an mri um you know magnetic resonance imaging uh that used to have the word nuclear in front of it which it is and then they took the word nuclear out because people were freaked out by it so the whole psychology of it is really important and part of what's happened with nuclear power is i call it cross wiring in our brains where we're scared of one thing and then by there's a guilt by association so it starts with the cold war and nuclear weapons, which are a good thing to be really afraid of. I mean, and I am, you know, that that's something that really is very dangerous um, and a little bit out of control. Nuclear weapons, but that's not nuclear power, right? So we we crosswire it because it's this, you know, it has similarities, same word and all. And then we had this weird coincidence in um, Three Mile Island uh, nuclear accident in Pennsylvania, where there was a movie in the theaters at that very moment the China syndrome with Jane Fonda and it was a new Dude, you put Jane Fonda in it that's in everybody's mind I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon 
of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. There's a nuclear power disaster movie, and people think what happened at Three Mile Island is what happened in the movie. Actually, nobody was hurt at all at Three Mile Island. It was an expensive industrial accident. You know, that's it. And then you had uh, Fukushima, where there was an epic natural disaster, the fourth worst earthquake in history and a 50-foot tsunami, and it wiped out whole villages, towns, you know, infrastructure, and killed almost 20,000 people. And then it also damaged this nuclear plant, which leaked some radiation, but not enough to actually harm anyone. And people cross-wire it and think that there was a nuclear disaster. There wasn't, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the book, and you said there were several other nuclear power plants too, right, that leaked no radiation. And and this was the thing that had a weird diesel backup system. Like there was something about the backup system that failed. And even with the failure... It's not catastrophic, the, the results. It's just, you know, it, it's just fascinating that this data is not hard to find, yeah. right? It, it, it's, it's, it's pretty incontrovertible, you know, like, in, and yet people's imaginations are just so colored by those kind of factors, right? That it's hard. I mean, are, do you ever just take, like, it, when you're giving talks, like, a piece of, like, styrofoam painted like concrete and bang your head against the wall like what do i have to do to convince you i haven't i haven't had to do that because people actually come up after the talk or an interview and say i was you know i was against this before you know half an hour ago and now i'm in favor of it so people's minds are able to change about it one thing that's been really effective in changing minds um and i haven't used it enough yet but humor can really work on fears um and the great example of this is a Dutch comedian, Lubach, who has a weekly news parody kind of show. It's like The Daily Show here. Uh, and he's quite funny. So he did a 20-minute segment on nuclear power, and he just presented the facts of it. Um, a lot of the stuff that's in my book. Um, but then he interspeached it with humor. So, for instance, uh, the, the waste issue. And he's got a clip of somebody saying, all the waste, if you used nuclear power for your whole lifetime, would fit into the size of this apple. And he goes, hmm, I'm not sure I'd want to eat that apple. And then he looks at it and says, oh, wait, it's a uranium delicious. That's good, you know. And, <laughs> and you hear this nervous laughter from the audience, right? Sort of nervous laughter. But then they can take in the information because that's like broken up their fears about the horrible nuclear waste, which is actually very small and manageable. Um, and... Uh, I don't have the data on it, but I've heard that this 20-minute humorous uh, monologue actually flipped public opinion completely in the Netherlands. Like before he did that, they were they were like, we don't want nuclear power. And afterwards, like, we want more nuclear reactors, you know, because they, they can take in the information when it's mixed in with humor and when the fears can be um, deactivated. 
Yeah, and my my other sort of hat I wear, I'm actually a Protestant minister, and as I was reading this book, I was thinking, gosh, this is so great. Like, I would recommend this in seminary for sermon analogies. You have this great analogy where you say that for many of us, it's a section where you say there's a difference between uh, something that's that's that is fearful versus dangerous. Like, many of us would be afraid, you say, to jump off a 34-foot diving board into an Olympic pool, right, like Olympians do. Uh, but it's not really dangerous. It's scary, but it's not dangerous, provided you can swim. Right. Now, transfer that 30-foot jump to a, a train to a bridge where there's a train coming at you, and your only option is to jump, right? It's still uh, scary, but you'd have more sense of urgency. Right, <laughs> like, right. The thing that's look, dangerous is the train. And so in this analogy, you know, climate change is the train coming at us. And nuclear power is the jump. You know, it's it's scary, and you you don't want to you don't want to mess it up too bad. But probably you're going to be okay, and you're definitely not going to be okay if you stay on the bridge. And then what we hear from the the this hundred percent renewable kind of approach or various other ideas is well we'll we'll just start moving away from the train along the bridge. You know, we'll take some steps in the right direction. But you got to calculate, are those steps going to get you off the bridge in time or not? And right now with climate change, we're not getting off the bridge in time at all. We have to do some bigger things that might feel scary. Yeah, the train would have to be going in reverse for that solution to be. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting too. like you compare in the book Sweden to Germany, which is fascinating. And you say, you know, after certain accidents, like there was more of an anti-nuclear movement in Germany and Germany still is famous for its renewables, right? Like one day they had 70 some percent of their, I forget when 2014, I forget what it was, but they had like 70% of their grid, you know, like nuclear uh, with renewables or maybe it was even higher than, maybe it was higher than that. But, but you say like, well, I mean, but then look when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining and they're using a lot of things like coal, right? Which is, I mean, when I hear the term clean coal, it just seems to, to really strain credulity. You pick up a piece of coal, you get dirty. Like, it, it's just, how can you have clean coal? But, you know, so you say that, you know, that, that they're, it's almost self-defeating because along with their renewables, where they need subsidies, they use things like uh, ga- like methane, gas, you know, the, and, 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 and other kind of carbon, high carbon fuels. And so it's sort of, it's a wash. Yeah. So Germany uses about 40% coal and it's very politically ensconced in their system. You know, they have to support the coal industry. Um, and then they're putting on all these renewables and saying that they're a climate leader. So again, what's the metric that matters here? It's carbon emissions. And if you look at Germany's carbon emissions, they've hardly come down at all. Um, and the reason is that when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, they're burning coal. Um, also, they're making things worse by taking offline their nuclear power and replacing it with wind and solar. So the wind and solar that could have been replacing coal is instead just replacing another clean energy source. And that doesn't reduce carbon emissions at all. Um, Sweden, by contrast, when they put out their rolled out their nuclear power several decades ago, they put energy on the grid much faster than Germany's doing with renewables. And in less than 20 years, they cut their carbon emissions in half. I mean, that's the that's the metric we're looking at here. And meanwhile, their GDP went up. Um, they have they use a lot of energy. They stay warm in their cold Swedish winters and so forth. But um, if you if you want to look for yourself, there's a wonderful website called electricitymap.org, and it shows all the countries of the world and and several of the states in the United States also um, in terms of how much carbon is being emitted per kilowatt hour of electricity being generated. So how dirty or clean is your electric generation? And you can look at that 
over time and see that the ones that are green that have the low, I give you some numbers on it. So it's 500 grams of carbon per kilowatt hours, the world average. And coal is like eight or 900 if you use all coal. And what you need to do is get down to 50, like reduce it by 90% really fast. So there's countries that are already below 50 and they're green on this map. And all of them are either heavily dependent on hydroelectric power, which is great for them, but you can't use it all over the world. Elsewhere, most of the good places are already dammed up and a lot of countries don't have the potential. Or they're using nuclear power. France, Sweden, Ontario province and Canada, those are green and they're green day in, day out, you know, all around the year, winter time. My solar cells on my roof don't produce in winter and neither do the ones in Germany much. Um, yeah, and so, you know in the book that that also with renewables, and you're not anti-renewable. You yeah, like renewable. Yeah, like, yeah. Let's keep experimenting. Like Let's keep developing. But you say that the, the battery technology is nowhere near the degree to which like we like renewables – for them to be anywhere near a, a solution, you'd have to be able to store the energy better when it's not windy or sunny. And that's just not, we don't have the kind of battery technology, even the best, most sophisticated, to actually make that feasible. And there's nothing really on the horizon that's about to make that breakthrough in the time scale that we need. Maybe in the second half of the century, we'll have that. <clears throat> that would be great. Um, Mike, Co-author Stefan Fist has done analyses of the uh, renewable production in Europe over the course of a year and found that there's an entire week when basically neither solar nor wind are producing anywhere in the continent. So this isn't something you can fix by wiring up everything in a grid and hoping the sun is shining somewhere. It's not. And what do you do during that week? We have nothing close to a battery that's going to store Europe's energy use for a week. You know, completely not close. And um, we're not going to turn off the lights in Europe for a week while we wait for the wind to start blowing again. So you end up that you need fossil fuel backup or you need nuclear power. And if you're going to use fossil fuel, that means an entire infrastructure of fossil production, you know, gas pipelines and oil tankers and the whole thing to be able to produce during those times when the renewables aren't producing. So renewables are great. We should use them where we can. Solar's getting really cheap now. Wind is also uh, quite affordable in places. And when you start putting them on the grid, it's all great. It's this idea of 100% renewables or that that's the end of the answer. That just doesn't work because of the battery issue primarily. The other problem with renewables in terms of, you know, the only thing we need is renewables. They're slower to roll out than nuclear power. Nuclear is so uh, concentrated that you can put it out really fast. A I'll give you an example. A pound of coal will power your house if you turn it into electricity for about an hour. But a pound of nuclear fuel will power your house for two years. So it's just like way, way more concentrated. We could all have electric cars yeah. if we had more. I mean, I mean, you could just, I mean, right? I mean, like it would, it's just it's interesting. Reinhold yeah. Niebuhr, great 20th century uh, Christian ethicist and thinker and public intellectual, said that Original sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. And you kind of talk about how people are like, you know, we're self-interested, right? We don't want to really, we, we want to keep modern conveniences. And also you have developing economies like China and India. What are you going to say to them? Well, guys, uh, you've got to sort of just hang back behind everybody for the carbon crisis. I mean, people are just not going to do that, right? I mean, we have to have something that not only is, is sustain, is, is, is lowers our carbon footprint, but also 
it's cheaper. People are like, oh, wow, you mean I can keep my lifestyle and it's cheaper and it's good for the environment? I mean, that sort of plays into the human selfish gene, right? And 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 this is what you're offering as opposed to sort of this kind of uh, half-baked kind of 100% renewable that, that, that really is impossible and other kinds of mythologies that, you know, that you've got to have something that actually is not only technically feasible, but also is, it, it takes the human condition on the ground and seriously. Yeah. So we're not going to solve climate change by using less energy. And this is something that um, a lot of people in the United States who care about climate change say, oh, we just need to be more efficient. We need to use less and give up some of our high energy use lifestyle. That's fine. I, I try to do that myself where I can, you know, eat less meat and that kind of thing. But then you've got most of the energy growth in the world is coming from poorer countries. And it's a great thing. It's lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, um, as has already happened in China. Now it's starting to happen in India, Indonesia, these other big developing countries that are using a lot more energy. Just the air conditioning alone in India is adding fantastic amounts of energy onto the demand um, worldwide. And so are you going to tell somebody who's dying of heat stroke in India that they can't have an air conditioner or, or some, somebody who's, um, I have, there's a picture in the book of people in a village that are milling sugar cane by hand. Somebody's pushing around this big heavy wheel by hand, you know, manual labor. And with electricity, that would really improve their lives. So for an American um, who, who wants less energy use, you know, are you telling those people they shouldn't have electricity to run their mill in their village in India? Um, or are you going to volunteer to give up your phone and your car? You know, <laughs> neither of those is usually true, but the, the, the point is that there's a billion people in the world still without electricity and a hundred thousand a day are coming onto the grid. Um, there's just huge energy growth coming from the poorer countries, more than from the richer countries where we have, efficiency measures that are sort of flattening out our, our electricity growth. So you can't solve climate change by telling all the poor countries to go live in a cave and, and not improve their lives. That's That would be immoral and impractical. So you have to have something that's going to work for them. And right now, that's coal. You know, the way that the farmer in India is going to get an air conditioner is through burning coal to produce cheap electricity. And if we don't want them to burn coal, um, we have to have something that can replace it. And nuclear power is really good that way because it's a, a base load, you know, round the clock producer of electricity the way coal is. And with we haven't talked about the economics, but I think with proper policy and development, it could be cheaper than coal. And then the manager in Vietnam who's putting in a power plant that's going to run on coal will say, Hmm, I'm not going to run this on coal because it's cheaper to run it on nuclear power. Um, you you can't be just moralistic about it and say don't run coal. It's bad for our climate. You know, <laughs> like they they want they they want electricity and they're going to put it in. Shouldn't this proposal hit every liberal erogenous zone, like <laughs> reducing the reducing the carbon footprint systemically globally, lifting up global uh, people caught in global poverty, right? Which is going to mean. As you get more access to modernity, that's going to mean better treatment for women and, and, and upward mobility. I mean, it just this seems like uh, it, it almost sells itself. Yeah. And by the way, one of the things about uh, women and women's education, when you when people get more money and always that means more energy use, um, then population growth levels out and comes down because the birth rates fall 
as uh, incomes rise. That's well demonstrated. So the people who say, oh, it's overpopulation. There's too many people. Okay, great. Put in a, b- a bunch of energy and and provide it to people in poor countries who don't have it, and their population guaranteed will stop growing. Who's been your best critic of this work? Like, I mean, what arguments have you? I mean, your your book is pretty. It, I, I'm not an expert, but it, it it. But I mean, I've I've sort of intuitively been on this side for a while. Like, I've heard some people make the argument, and I and and you make it in a way that's more comprehensive and rhetorically, I think better than i've seen it made i mean is what's the what are the critiques that that you didn't anticipate or i mean what arguments what pushback do you get that you're kind of working on combating or or coming back at i get the whole list of um people's fears and worries about nuclear power um um, there's also some pushback on you know nuclear power is great but don't worry about climate change that's just a hoax (laughs) that aside um the things that that are not real issues, but people are very concerned about, and it just needs education and maybe some of that Dutch humor is um, the waste issue. You know, what do we do with the waste, the safety issue? Um, you know, didn't Fukushima cause a disaster? Those kinds of things. Um, and the proliferation, won't people uh, make nuclear power plants into bombs, which, by the way, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have a great section in your book on nuclear proof proliferation it's excellent so, where, where you talk about these these very issues in, in in some detail yeah and so so those are not the issues i'm worried about the the big issue that i think is a real issue is the economics and the finance of it and it's it breaks down in two parts um one part is nuclear plants are have become in the united states and europe just way too expensive to build and we have these fiascos of cost overruns. You may know in the United States, we set out to build four of a brand new reactor design, Westinghouse reactor, and two have been canceled and the other two are just vastly over budget. Um, and yet China's just put four of those same reactor online in the last year. You know, they can build that kind of stuff. And part of this has to do with big capital projects, be it nuclear power plants or bridges or railroads or highways, all this stuff that involves a lot of concrete seems to always go over budget in the United States and Europe these days. I'm not entirely sure why that is, but that part's not specific to nuclear. Then there's the problem. uh, So I'm sorry on that. South Korea is building similar nuclear plants at one sixth of the cost that we are. So is the answer that nuclear is too expensive or should we do things more like South Korea? What they do is to take the same design and build it over and over again, uh, and the costs come down. Uh, France did the same thing when they built out their nuclear power. So repeated builds of the same design, you get good at it. And um, the, the old quip about France was they have 100 kinds of cheese and two types of nuclear reactor. And in the United States, the situation's reversed from that. So, you know, we need to be more like France, more kinds of cheese, fewer kinds of nuclear reactors. The first thing off the line is always expensive. The first iPhone costs $2 billion. It doesn't mean that iPhones are too expensive. You just have to get a production process going. So that's that's part one is we need to, to uh, stamp out nuclear reactors off an assembly line more like Boeing jets and, and do them less like um, a big construction project in the U.S., the part two is a little harder to get around, and it is that there, it's a big project to build a nuclear power plant. It's going to, under best of circumstances, cost a couple billion dollars for one of these large-scale plants, and then it'll produce revenue for 60 to 80 years. 
And in a deregulated market, that's a hard sell because you have a discount rate and you, companies don't care very much about revenue 50 years in the future, right? So, and a utility might have to sort of put its whole future on the line to build a nuclear power plant because it's such a big amount up front. And that's where there are new startup companies that are trying to design smaller nuclear reactors. A big impetus behind that is to be able to build something for, say, $100 million rather than $2 billion uh, for this very reason that the financing is much more favorable then. You can get the money, build something, start getting revenue, then build more of it and so forth instead of this kind of massive investment all up front. But those two criticisms, right, you would say, based on reading your book, those are child's play compared to what it would take to combat the carbon problem and the climate change problem with renewables or anything else, right? I mean, these are, those are two issues that are more like political will and societal will, not technical challenges and things like that. Well, the building the smaller reactors is a technical challenge. The, there are the companies, the startups are, are doing it. They're making good progress. Um, the dilemma there is that it, it's going to be most of a decade before those are actually ready to scale up large scale commercially. And we already know how to do the big ones, the, the what South Korea is already doing um, eh, to, to build the big one. So is there something we can do in the next decade that'll get a lot of clean energy on the grid, maybe while we're waiting for these new designs to come online. And, and part of that with, with the, with the re replication, right, that a favorable climate for the energy source makes that possible, right? It becomes sensible to lay out on the front end to drop the cost on replication because you know that there's an, a market for it, right? right? right. Like, and, and usually because of these economic issues, the most successful nuclear rollouts have involved a pretty strong government involvement. Like in Sweden, it was a public-private partnership. In France, it was just the government. Um, but the, it, just throwing it up to a deregulated uh, market doesn't work so well because companies don't plan very well for long-term um, long payback of, of this kind. I mean, imagine if we... Uh, try to build the interstate highway system just by putting it up for local companies to do whatever they want anywhere. It doesn't work very well. So so you need to put a concerted effort in and not just hope that things will happen by themselves. But then the, the game changer is to do multiple builds, um, more than the 30 or 40 that have ever been built historically of the same design. I mean, build hundreds of the same thing. Take that South Korean design or China could do this with their designs. You know, they're very good at building these things affordably. They could get the coal off their grid in the next 15 or 20 years entirely by building out hundreds of nuclear reactors. And the cost would come down as they did it. Um, it would reduce world carbon emissions by more than 10%, which would be the single most effective thing by far that had ever been done to combat climate change. And then they would have this model of being able to produce super cheap nuclear reactors, running them off an assembly line from a shipyard or a factory. Um, and one idea is build them in shipyards and float them to where they're going instead of laying concrete at each site, um, pull them up to shore and plug them in, you know. Um, so a model like that would be fantastic for China because they would get the coal off and um, be able to breathe again and be great for climate change. They just have to kind of decide to do that. And they haven't decided. I think they've got their own nuclear fears there. Do you feel like what we need in this country is like a film? Like maybe you get like Tom Hanks, Oprah and Ellen, you know, in the, you know, because oh, they got the people that everybody trusts and the comedic element. Or maybe a Pixar film where some kid gets bullied 
and to escape the bullies, he hangs out in the science lab, works on nuclear power, and saves the planet. I mean, something emotional that could get everybody into it. It's exactly what we need, and it's actually just what I've been talking with people about. You know, we need a film about the you know nuclear power saving the planet. It's just it's hard to uh, figure out a storyline for it. And you know, even if I had an in with the with Hollywood, um, because it's it's easier to do a storyline like China Syndrome, where there's a disaster and it's all compressed in a short space, and there's a lot of screaming and bleeding going on, and that gets your attention. But uh, climate change, because it's kind of long term, um, you you need to you need some device of moving around through time, or, you know, a time travel thing or something like this to show how uh, nuclear power can save the day. <laughs> Do you anticipate the nuclear question coming up at all in the current political season? Because climate change is a pretty hot issue. I mean, it's hotly debated. I mean, do you think that that any it would likely be Democrats, I'm guessing, just because they're the ones that are concerned about climate change. Do you think do you foresee any Democratic presidential candidate saying, hey, here's we need to move in this direction? Yeah, yeah. Um, they're already I mean, Cory Booker is pro nuclear power. Um, some of them are not so much. But um What's interesting in the Congress is that there's a lot of support on both sides of the aisle for the new startups with their innovative nuclear designs and for putting some government support behind those in terms of making place uh, government facilities available where companies can test their new reactors, putting in startup money, um, you know, helping with the share technology and all that kind of thing. There was a bill just passed. It got almost no attention. But a couple months ago, Nuclear Energy Innovation and Modernization Act passed Congress with huge margins uh, from both parties. And it was supported. It was sponsored by Sheldon Whitehouse, a super liberal from Rhode Island on one end, and uh, Cory Booker and people in the middle. And then uh, Jim Inhofe, the famous climate denier from Oklahoma on the other end, you know, as a right wing and left wing, they don't agree what the problem is, but they agree on what the solution is. So that's kind of paradoxical, but that's been signed into law now. And I think that's um, one, you know, favorable thing is that it, this actually could be one of the few areas where Congress could make some progress despite all the partisan gridlock. And then in the Democratic Party, there's a big debate going on now about the Green New Deal. Um, and what should that include? And one wing says it should include all the clean energy sources, you know, potentially including nuclear power. And another says, no, it should just be 100% renewables. We don't like carbon pricing. We don't like nuclear power. We don't like carbon capture and sequestration. We don't like geoengineering. No, 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 no. So, and that's what I'm talking about. Um, do we have the luxury to take that approach? But I think that what's about to be introduced as legislation will be that 100% renewables approach. But there is a debate going on within the Democratic Party. It'll, it'll be debated in committee as to whether or not it should be this broader approach. And I have some hope that it would be. Do they know your phrase? You have a phrase in the book, newables. Yeah. They, they can't be just renewables, but newables, yeah. nuclear plus renewables can really be. You need to get them using your phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That phrase didn't really catch on with people um, like I'd hoped. But... Uh, <laughs> But I think that, you know, the concept is good. Nuclear power plus renewables plus whatever else you can do. There's a, a quarter of carbon emissions that are from agriculture and land use. And that's the piece you can't really address with electricity alone. 
So one of the misconceptions about 100% renewable is if you got your electricity grid all cleaned up, you would solve the problem. That's not true at all. Electricity is only about a quarter of the carbon emissions. So then you've got this quarter that's agricultural land use that has to be other kinds of solutions. And then you've got half that's transportation, industry, heating buildings, which now runs on fossil fuels, but has to be decarbonized in some way, either by electrifying, like driving electric cars, or by creating substitute fuels, like something that looks like gasoline to your car, but is actually produced without, um, you know, by sucking the carbon out of the air to make it. And those substitutes or the direct electrification, it all comes down to vast amounts of clean, cheap electricity that you need to solve it. But it's not just today's grid. It's the growth in the grid. It's those poor developing countries. It's uh, decarbonizing industry and transportation and all of that, uh, you know, creating ammonia without using methane gas to create it. And just a slew of things that all come back to at the core. We're going to need probably four to eight times the electricity on the world in the world than what we're generating now. And that's just something that renewables isn't going to get there fast enough by itself. Imagine if we just had a way to increase our power production to meet the increasing demand and drop the carbon footprint at the same time. That's the, that's the, that's the thing. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, wait. You wrote a whole book about it. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's Sweden for you. You know, people think, oh, we need to make terrible sacrifices. We need to give up our lifestyle. We need to pay a ton of money to solve this problem. Or we need to suffer, you know, our children and grandchildren being on an uninhabitable planet. And it's like, that's the wrong trade-off, I think. Um, you know, the idea of burdens and sacrifices, uh, because that's not what Sweden's doing. Sweden has a high energy use lifestyle, uh, high GDP per person, you know, good health and pretty happy people. Uh, and yet they're just not producing the carbon while they do that. Same thing with Toronto, you know, in Ontario, Canada. Toronto runs on nuclear power, little known fact. And um, there's a, you know, bustling, pretty together city just happens to run, or Paris, you know, they run on nuclear power. They're um, not making terrible sacrifices and bearing burdens, but they're just not producing carbon in how they're making their electricity. Joshua, this is a great book. I hope uh, every person on those congressional committees they're debating it read it. And it's a great book. And thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it. Oh, it's been great chatting with you. There's a book website if people want more information about it at brightfuturebook.com. Everybody uh, run, don't walk to Amazon to get this book because it's, uh, hey, this is, is really the solution we're looking for. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Joshua for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, A Bright Future. You will not regret it, I promise you. And thanks again 
to you for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.